and let's cultivate our motivation and really appreciate this opportunity to hear and practice the Dharma knowing that at any moment it could end even though we feel so solid and permanent and real that's a completely false appearance and we actually live in the midst of uncertainty because we're conditioned by afflictions and karma and that's the nature of samsara and so while we have this respite from terrible suffering let's really use it wisely and kindly and develop the bodhicitta motivation to abandon all there is to abandon all the obscurations and to develop all of the good qualities completely in order to become a Buddha for the purpose of benefiting all living beings. Today we're um, going to talk about refuge, and refuge is a really wonderful topic because um, it's, you know, talking about the direction that we take in life. Um, one of my Dharma friends, Alex Burson, translated refuge as taking a safe direction. And so that's a literal translation, but it gives us a little bit of the meaning that, you know, when we take refuge, we're taking a safe direction in our life. You know, that, uh, we're always, as long as she said, we're always taking refuge. You know, because taking refuge is the process of seeking something that's going to lead us to happiness. So we're always taking refuge, looking for happiness, aren't we? all the time yeah. and the thing is that usually what we take refuge in um, doesn't cook <laughs> yeah because we, we run around uh, seeking refuge seeking happiness seeking uh, security and an alleviation from our misery from things that don't really have the ability to do that So like I was saying yesterday, in America we take refuge in our credit card. And as somebody pointed out, that's over. over. (laughs) You know, you take refuge in your credit card and then look what happens. People have been living beyond their means and now they're stuck with a lot of credit card debt. And, you know, it's a very difficult situation. So... You know, taking refuge in consumerism, of which the credit card is the key to the whole thing, 
um, is kind of a, a dead end. And instead of leading to happiness, it's leading to more perplexity and confusion in our lives. Um, I usually joke that in America we have three objects of refuge. The, the credit card, the TV set, and the refrigerator. <laughs> yeah, so Buddhists have three objects of refuge too. But, uh, you know, so we, we go to the credit card. Yeah, for, uh, it's kind of like the Buddha because that enables us to get the the TV and the and the refrigerator. Okay. So, <laughs> so just as Buddha taught the Dharma and enabled the Sangha to come into existence, so the credit card is, you know, the root of the whole thing. Uh, but as we've seen, it's just um, it makes a mess, doesn't it? Doesn't work. Yeah. So, so then, if we if we can't go shopping into the shopping mall and get more things that we don't really need, that uh, you know, take more than our fair share of the earth's resources and clutter our house. If we can't do that, then we turn to the second object of refuge, the television set. And so by TV, I'm, I'm also including the computer, you know, and the movies. So don't think you're getting off light. <laughs> yeah. But, well, you know, entertainment, basically, is the whole thing. It could be your iPod. It could be, it used to be stereos, but nobody has stereos anymore, do they? <laughs> so, you know, whatever widgets you have that provide you entertainment, now that's another object of our refuge. And it's basically just distraction, isn't it? You know, something to fill our mind with a lot of noise, a lot of pictures, a lot of excitement, but at the end of the day, again, we're left kind of flat, aren't we? Because yeah. uh, we see all the movies, we go surfing online, we look at this, that, and the other thing. And nothing really comes of it except <laughs> we've probably talked ourselves into using the credit card more than we should have. <laughs> yeah, because of all the advertising on the TV and the internet. Okay, and then of course it gets us all ruffled and scared, you know. The media is designed to make us afraid and to provoke a sense of despair in us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we fall for its plot. We do that. So it doesn't bring much happiness in our life. And so then when it gets really bad, we head for the refrigerator. <laughs> you know, that's the real source of refuge. Yeah. So we all have our own things. It's, it's, uh, I remember as a kid watching my dad with a half gallon of chocolate ice cream. Oh, it used to be a half gallon of chocolate ice cream. You know, so we all have our own thing. Go to the refrigerator and take something out and then take something else out and then take something else out and you know, go through the cupboard and munch and nosh and so on and so forth, thinking that it's going to bring alleviation of the anxiety that we feel. And yet, at the end, we're back where we started from, except we usually feel worse, don't we? Because we've eaten too much, then we feel crummy about ourselves, and our body feels heavy, and... Okay, so... 
these kinds of objects of refuge um, are false objects of refuge. They're not the real path to happiness. When we, you know, looking for a spiritual refuge, then we're looking for a reliable source of happiness. So when we're looking for a reliable source of happiness, we want something that is indeed reliable. And so I think the fact that Buddhism has been around for nearly 2,600 years is saying something. Not that longevity necessarily proves reliability, but in the case of the Buddhist teachings, uh, throughout the centuries there have been practitioners who have actualized what the Buddha uh, taught and attained the same state as the Buddha did. And so there's living proof that the teachings uh, are efficacious and that they bring the result that they say they're going to bring. Yeah. So that's very important that, that there's um, practitioners, you know, a valid lineage and proven results in it. Otherwise, somebody can just kind of come along and lots of people do this, make up a new religion and... Uh, you know, market it in the New Age newspapers. And the more you use the words light and love, the more people are going to come. Yeah. So then you start out at 99.99 and it goes to 199.99, you know. And, uh, you know, we start following paths that don't really uh, lead to anything good because they haven't been able to identify uh, first what our unsatisfactory situation is, second, what its origin is, third, if there exists a cessation to those the, the unsatisfactory conditions and their origins, and fourth, an accurate path that can actually lead us to the cessation of misery. Okay? So those things haven't been able to do that. And while we may follow them and have a whole community of people and feel like we belong to a community and have lots of friends and social events and things like that, it doesn't necessarily mean that at the end of the day that refuge is going to come through for us. And I say this because at least when I'm in Singapore, you know, there's been a big upsurge of uh, Christianity there, and a lot of the Buddhists feel like they have to compete with the Christians to have social events and dances for the young people and parties and things like this, because that will draw more people. And you know, they say, oh, the Christian churches have all these fun social activities, and everybody comes, and so their churches are growing. Um, but I say, but, you know, having social activities and people come to them doesn't really mean that there's anything spiritual going on. Yeah, it means you have a nice community. Okay. But the spiritual practice, you have to really look an individual's heart and see what the practice is that they're doing and uh, how their minds are being transformed by the practice. Yeah, and so if the practice we're doing is bringing more attachment, more hatred, more disputes with other people, then 
either the path isn't correct or we're not practicing it properly. Because I think all faiths are actually designed to bring more harmony amongst human beings, not more division. The division we do all by ourselves. That's the deluded mind that we're trying to counteract. So I thought what I would go through today is is something that I spoke about at the Cloud Mountain Retreats. A few of you heard it. But you probably haven't looked at your notes. (laughs) If you trust me. <laughs> Have you? <laughs> uh, so it wouldn't hurt to go through it again. <laughs> okay. So this is a, uh, it's something, it's based on a salutation that Dinaga uh, used at the beginning of his Compendium of Valid Cognition. Uh, and it's a salutation to the Buddha talking about why the Buddha is a reliable guide. Okay? So the salutation, is, it's quite a famous one. They teach it in the monasteries a lot. It says, I bow, I bow to the one who has become reliable intent on benefiting migrating beings, the teacher, the one gone to bliss, the protector. Okay? I think it's, I'll say it again, so those of you who write it down can write it down a second time. (laughs) But some of you didn't write it down the first time. And don't look like you're writing it down now either. So, it says, I bow down to the one who has become reliable, intent on benefiting migrating beings, Teacher, the one gone to bliss, the protector. So there you have five epithets for the Buddha. Okay? that are talking about five qualities of the Buddha. Okay. Uh, Dinagas paying homage. I bow down to the one who has become reliable, intent on benefiting migrating beings, the teacher, the one gone to bliss, the protector. Okay. So, this is uh, a way to describe why the Buddha is a reliable guide why he is one who has become a reliable guide. So it starts out with uh, the, the, actually the second epitaph, but this is the first quality, intent on benefiting migrating beings. So this talks about the Buddha's quality of great compassion. So the whole thing starts with great compassion. Because the Buddha has great compassion, um, 
you know, well, first of all, he, he has the great compassion because he's looked at the situation of sentient beings, understands well what cyclic existence is, how miserable the uh, dukkha, the unsatisfactory conditions in cyclic existence are. And he understands how we're trapped by the mental afflictions and the actions we create due to them. And so seeing this situation has great compassion for it. Now, we often see how other people are trapped by their anger and their ignorance, and we get angry at them in return, don't we? Yeah? Somebody who's behaving in dysfunctional ways and self-sabotaging, we get mad at them. The Buddha reacts with compassion. Yeah, big difference there, isn't it? Okay, so seeing the suffering, seeing how we're causing our suffering, reacting with compassion, and he's able to react with compassion because he sees us as lovable. Okay, so here you have, you know, the two main meditations we need to do to develop compassion. One is the meditation on the disadvantages of of, uh, cyclic existence, the unsatisfactory conditions, the suffering of cyclic existence. And the other is the kindness of sentient beings. Because when we meditate on their kindness, then we see them as lovable, you know, or affectionable, worthy of our affection. And so there's this feeling of closeness that arises in our minds towards them. Okay. And so that, that leads to compassion. Yeah. Compassion is the wish that sentient beings be free from suffering. Great compassion is a step beyond compassion. Okay. Compassion wishes ourselves and others to be free of, of cyclic existence and its causes. Great compassion is willing to do something about the situation. Okay. So it's the difference between standing on the beach watching somebody drown and saying, they're drowning them, they're drowning, go rescue them. And somebody seeing that somebody's drowning and going and jumping in the water and pulling them back to land and, and rescuing them. Okay. So the great compassion is really committed to working for the benefit of sentient beings. Okay. So it starts with that. Yeah, that commitment that is dedicated to freeing all sentient beings from dukkha, suffering, and its causes. Okay, so motivated by that great compassion, that intent on benefiting migrating beings. Okay, because that great compassion is the chief thing that leads to bodhicitta. Yeah. So there's other factors that lead to bodhicitta too, but the great compassion is an indispensable prerequisite. Okay, so with that intent, that migrating beings, then the Buddha looks for what is the way to free them. Okay, migrating beings are beings that migrate from one realm to another in cyclic existence, going up and down, you know, human realm, hell realm, God realm, hungry ghost realm. They're migrating all the time. Uh, okay, so 
in seeking, you know, what's the way to free these migrating beings from this predicament, then, uh, and having determined that the source of the whole predicament is the ignorance that grasps the true existence, was the ignorance of our ultimate nature. Then the Buddha has set about, well, before he became a Buddha, has set about realizing the opposite of ignorance. So ignorance grasps at inherent existence. The Buddha was dedicated to realizing the wisdom that understands the absence of inherent existence. Okay? So this is a wisdom that is able to negate inherent existence, to prove that there's no such thing as inherent existence. And by doing that, and familiarizing the mind with that, that vision of the ultimate nature of reality, then it's possible to eliminate all of the afflictions. When we eliminate the afflictions, then the karma that causes rebirth in samsara is no longer created. And the craving and grasping, the eighth and ninth of the twelve links, no longer occur. So any previously created karma for rebirth can't ripen. And then liberation is attained. Okay? So this wisdom is the key. The wisdom is also the key to attaining full enlightenment because the wisdom enables us to develop all the bodhisattva qualities and to continue meditating on emptiness until we eliminate also the cognitive obscurations that prevent the attainment of full enlightenment. Okay? So that the wisdom realizing emptiness is called the second one, the teacher, because that is what the Buddha teaches to sentient beings so that we can free ourselves. Okay? So the, the intent on benefiting migrating beings is great compassion that leads to the determination to realize the ultimate nature in order to free oneself and others. And that's called the teacher, that wisdom realizing emptiness. Okay? By practicing the wisdom realizing emptiness, familiarizing our mind with it over and over and over again, then we're able to eliminate the two obscurations, the afflictive obscurations, the cognitive obscurations. Okay, afflictive ones are the afflictions, the karma that causes rebirth, the cognitive obscurations are the latencies of the afflictions, and the subtle dualistic appearance, the subtle appearance of true existence. Okay? So it enables us to eliminate those from our mind and attain full Buddhahood. Okay? So a Buddha has two qualities. It's called perfect abandonments and perfect realizations. So perfect abandonments means that the Buddha has abandoned everything there is to abandon. Okay, both obscurations. So, you know, if you think about it this way, everything that you don't like about yourself has been abandoned. Make it practical, okay? Everything that you feel lousy about, that you've done, habits and traits you don't like about yourself, self-sabotaging behavior, all the obscurations that prevent you from using 
your Buddha nature and developing your love and compassion, all of that has been completely abandoned in such a way that it can no longer appear. Okay, so that's the quality of abandonment. Then, the second one, the quality of realizations, means that all the good qualities there are have been fully actualized. Okay, so love and compassion and generosity, ethical conduct, fortitude, joyous effort, concentration, wisdom, you know, uh, power, skillful means, aspiring um, wishes, exalted wisdom, everything, you know, the ability to make manifestations to benefit sentient beings, all of the good qualities you could ever imagine or think of have been brought to full completion. So there's nothing lacking. Yeah. So that's the quality of realizations. And that comes about through meditating on emptiness based on having bodhicitta and great compassion. So that state of the perfect abandonments and the perfect realizations, that's the next quality, the one gone to bliss. Okay? Or the, the Sanskrit term is the sugata. Okay? So a sugata, one who has gone to the bliss of full enlightenment with the perfect abandonments, the perfect realizations. Okay? Then, having, you know, being a sugata, being one with the perfect ban- abandonments and perfect realizations, a Buddha doesn't just sit there, you know, twiddling their thumbs, observing sentient beings going, oh, too bad, look at these guys, you know. But a Buddha is, like I said, you know, the whole reason they became a Buddha was in order to benefit us. And so then they spontaneously, without any effort or thought from their side, you know, manifest in whatever ways are necessary in order to benefit us. And how do they mostly benefit us is by teaching us the Dharma. So Buddhists can benefit sentient beings in a wide variety of ways. Buddhists can appear as many different things. They can appear as food and bridges and, you know, material objects. And so people who have the karma to, you know, be able to receive these things, you know, can can do that. I remember reading a, a story. It, it was in one of the... the um, one of the stories of one of the Thai masters, actually, who was on, uh, you know, they take these long walks, it's called Tudong, uh, where they wander for a long time. And he was wandering in an area where there was no food whatsoever and was trying to make it through this forest because he wasn't receiving any alms and was trying to get somewhere. And... Uh, and all of a sudden, kind of, he turned a corner, and out of nowhere, there was somebody with some food who offered it to him, and he ate, and then, you know, turned around, and the guy was gone, and there were no villages around or anything like that. So I was thinking, you know, this sounds like a case of, <laughs> yeah, I think they they attributed it to maybe a, a one of the deities, the god in the god realms, you know, appearing in that way. But to me, it sounds very much like what a Buddha or a Bodhisattva would do, 
You know, if somebody had that kind of karma to be able to receive that food that would sustain their lives. So, you know, a Buddha can manifest in all those different ways for our benefit. Okay, but that's not the, and that's helpful, isn't it, you know? I mean, it's wonderful when you're hungry to have food, when you're cold to have a blanket. But if you think about the the greatest kindness that we receive, it's the, hearing the Dharma teachings, because that is what enables us to transform our own mind. And it's the transformation of our own mind that stops all of our misery altogether once and for all. Okay? So having food or a blanket or whatever is nice. It's a Band-Aid. Yeah, the whole problem hasn't been solved. But the way that the Buddhas really protect us is by giving teachings. And so, they, you know, that's why we have the next step of tap, which is the protector, because by hearing the teachings and putting them into practice, then we actualize the Dharma in our own mind and that's the greatest protection is the Dharma in our mind because when we have the Dharma in our mind then, you know, we we aren't greedy yeah. so we don't create the negative karma of stealing and coveting and sleeping around when we have the Dharma in our mind we don't fly off the handle with a hot temper and hold on to grudges and resentment so we stop killing, we stop backbiting and creating disharmony and speaking harshly and having malice, you know, control our thoughts. When we eliminate ignorance, yeah, then we're stopping, you know, all the confusion in the mind because we're able to discern, you know, uh, on a conventional level, what are the causes of happiness, what are the causes of suffering, and put that into practice. And then on the ultimate level, we're able to perceive the ultimate nature of reality and use that realization to completely cleanse the mind. Okay? So, you know, that's the real protection. That's why in the prayer, when we, um, uh, when we offer food, that second line, to the supreme uh, refuge, the holy precious dharma, okay, so the Dharma is the real refuge because when we actualize it in our mind, then we free ourselves from from samsara and from uh, personal peace. Okay? And so that's why the Buddha is called the protector because he gives us the teachings to do that. Okay? So, yeah, being the one uh, intent on, on uh, benefiting migrating beings, the teacher, the one gone to bliss, the protector... Then, therefore, the Buddha is the one who has become reliable. So the Buddha is a reliable guide on the path out of our misery. And so if you think about it, all these different qualities are really necessary because if the Buddha only had great compassion, or if someone, let's say someone, only had great compassion, they wouldn't necessarily have the wisdom and the skill to be able to benefit us completely, definitely, they can give some benefit. But we know from our own experience, sometimes we have compassion for somebody that we don't know what in the world to do that's going to help. Yeah. 
Or imagine somebody who might know the ultimate nature of reality and be free of samsara themselves, but lacking great compassion, they just stay in their blissful meditative equipoise on emptiness while we're, you know, roaming around in samsara. That doesn't benefit us. Okay? So we really see that it's because somebody has become the one gone to bliss and not just become the one gone to bliss because, you know, somebody can become a Buddha, theoretically become a Buddha, and then not teach. Because remember when the Buddha first attained enlightenment under the Bodhi tree? For the first 49 days he didn't teach because he thought nobody's going to get it. You know? I've had this enlightened experience, and who in the world can I talk about it to? Nobody's going to understand what in the world I'm saying. Yeah, so it wasn't until the gods, you know, Brahma and Indra and so forth, came and requested him to teach. Yeah, so it's then when the Buddha teaches you know, that really becomes the protector and the uh, the reliable guide. Okay, so we can see in this way why the Buddha is a reliable guide for us. Yeah. So then when we take refuge in the Buddha, we're not just kind of, uh, you know, well, Buddha looks good and, you know, a lot of people have faith in him, so I have faith too. It's not just, you know, some kind of basic faith or even blind faith, but it's something based on knowing the qualities of a Buddha, and knowing how one attains enlightenment, okay? Because the more the clearer idea we have in our own minds of how one attains enlightenment, then the better we're going to understand what the the qualities of the enlightened one are. Okay? To understand the path to enlightenment, then we have to know what the cause of samsara is. Okay, so do you see how things come back to understanding the Four Noble Truths? To know, you know, knowing what what dukkha is, what its causes, the cessation, the path. And among the, the, um, the Four Noble Truths, it really depends on understanding the third one, true cessations. Okay, because... It's the emptiness of the mind that has fully extinguished all obscurations that is nirvana. That's the ultimate true cessation that we want to actualize. Okay? And we understand that that's nirvana because we can see how, you know, ignorance grasps at the opposite of the wisdom that realizes emptiness. So when we have the wisdom that realizes emptiness, it counteracts that ignorance and can eliminate it. You getting what I'm saying? So the clear idea we have of, you know, what is samsara? What causes it? Okay. And then, is it possible to eliminate those causes? And if so, how and why? Well, it's possible, one, because the afflictions are not in the nature of the mind, and two, because ignorance grasps at the opposite of reality. 
Okay? So, through our practice, you know, the more we're able to have a clearer idea of what ignorance is and what is this inherent existence that we grasp at and how that inherent existence does not exist at all, even conventionally, then the better idea we have of that, then the more convinced we become that it's actually possible to free our mind from all of the afflictions and to stop the karma. Okay? You seeing the, the chain, how all these things link up here? So it really, you know, the crux of the matter really comes back to inherent existence versus the wisdom realizing emptiness. And if emptiness is the ultimate mode of existence, then ignorance is false. If ignorance can be cut, then afflictions have nothing to stand on. They get cut. Then the karma creating rebirth in samsara gets cut. Then the suffering of samsara can't arise. Okay. And so that wisdom realizing emptiness is the, the chief of the true paths that we want to identify, you know, that we want to actualize. So when we talk about the Four Noble Truths, the, the true path, we're talking about the three higher trainings, and in the case of a Mahayana practitioner, also the Bodhicitta. The chief of that is the higher training in wisdom. To develop that, we need the higher training in concentration. To develop that, we need the higher training in ethical conduct. Okay, and so it comes back to ethical conduct and, you know, at the basic level, abandoning the the ten non-virtues and creating the ten virtues. That's what gets us started on the path and then we take it and develop more and more qualities based on all of that. Okay, so that's the Dharma refuge, the true cessation, the true path. Yeah, if somebody asks you, what's the Dharma refuge that... That, that you take refuge in, you should be able to say something. If you say those books wrapped in yellow cloth, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> okay? <laughs> yeah. The books wrapped in yellow cloth teach us the path to actualize the Dharma. But the real Dharma is the realizations in the mind of an Arya being, in the mind of somebody who has re- who has perceived emptiness directly. Yeah, so we need to know what that, what that refuge is. Because otherwise, you have to take refuge in this book. Well, what happens when the book gets destroyed? Where are you? Okay. And so, we have the Dharma refuge, which is the real refuge. Okay. When people actualize the Dharma, when they realize emptiness directly... They become the Sangha. So that's the Sangha that we take refuge in. And then the Buddha is the chief of the Sangha and the one who taught the Dharma, who taught the way to actualize the Dharma and to become the Sangha. Okay? So when we take refuge in Buddhism, it's based on having some understanding of what the path is. And, and all of these kinds of things. Yeah. So it's not just, uh, you know, I believe because Buddha looks peaceful or because, you know, they have really nice social events at the Buddhist temple 
or because my friends are Buddhist or, you know, for something like that. But we really have an understanding in our own heart. And the more that we learn the Dharma and the more we put it into practice and apply it to our own minds, then the deeper our refuge becomes. Yeah. So we, we start on the path of, of taking refuge just by listening to teachings and doing our meditation practice. And then at some point, you, you have the ceremony of taking refuge. And then after that, you continue to deepen your refuge. Because the more we practice and we see that the Dharma works and helps us in our present life and helps us in our future lives and helps us get out of cyclic existence altogether, then our faith becomes much stronger. And it's a faith that's based on understanding. So that's the kind of, of faith that we want to really cultivate because if it's, um, you know, a weak, if, it's, if, we, if there's not much understanding, then anybody else can come along and just criticize what we believe in and we get confused and go into crisis and say, I don't know what I believe in anymore. Okay? So those of you who have been studying tenants, yeah, I remember when my teacher was teaching tenants, he said, you know, we, we would hear about some of these beliefs at the lower schools or even at the non-Buddhist schools, and we would go, you know, who would believe in this stuff? And, and Kishi Sonnen would look at us and he said, you know, the, these people, if they came and give a talk, you know, you'd probably believe them. You know, if you don't have much discriminating wisdom, somebody gives an inspiring talk and you say, I believe, sign me up. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it really, what we're trying to develop very much is this discriminating wisdom so that we understand why we believe what we believe and so that we can, you know, really develop and further our refuge and further our practice and gain the the deeper levels of the realizations that we seek so that we can become the one intent on benefiting migrating beings, the teacher, the one gone to bless the protector, the one who has become reliable. Okay? So our ultimate goal is to become the Buddha Dharma Sangha ourselves. That's not arrogance. It's, you know, we have the same empty nature of the mind as the Buddha did. So, and we have the uh, factors in, on a conventional level as well that, you know, such as love and compassion that can be um, developed endlessly. So we have the possibility to become a Buddha ourselves. So initially, we take refuge in the external Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha because they're going to be the ones that guide us. But our whole purpose is to become the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha ourselves because when we have actualized the Dharma refuge in our own heart, then all suffering is eliminated or has been eliminated. And being stuck in our own personal peace has also been eliminated as well. So we have what's called the non-abiding nirvana of a fully enlightened one. 
Okay, so just a little bit of time for questions or comments. Yeah. I have a question from Pleasant Over Country Retreat that, mm-hmm. that comes from Tom Mugri. A question about um, becoming a Bodhisattva or, or realizing Bodhicitta without realizing emptiness. Mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. And the more I've thought about it and the more we've been getting all these teachings on, on emptiness, the more it's hard for me to actually see how you could develop a great enough respect or great enough care for the kindness of sentient beings without having that understanding of the suffering that comes from having this understanding. Mm-hmm. You know, so, but I, I thought that your answer mm-hmm. to Tom was that yes, that that's definitely possible to develop spontaneous bodhicitta without having that realization of it. No, 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 that's not what I said. Okay, so your question is about the relationship between realizing emptiness and generating compassion and, and or generating bodhicitta and in what order they're generated and can one or the other happen spontaneously. There's um, two general kinds of aptitudes of disciples, okay? The modest aptitude and the, the high aptitude, or sharp aptitude. The people of modest aptitude generate great compassion, they generate bodhicitta, and then based on that wish to become enlightened, then they meditate on emptiness in order to, because the, the meditation on emptiness is going to counteract the obscurations to enlightenment and enable them to become enlightened. Okay, so that's for the modest level practitioner. Okay, somebody of high aptitude has some feeling of bodhicitta, you know, some feeling of compassion, but they haven't actualized bodhicitta yet. But they want to really understand how is it possible to become a Buddha. So to understand that, then they seek, you know, what are the causes of of Samsara, so they understand what samsara, what ignorance is. They understand well how it brings about samsara. They understand the path. They understand how realizing emptiness enables you to to become a liberated being. And so, with that understanding on an intellectual level, then based on that, they generate bodhicitta. Okay. So that, that's the way of the high aptitude disciple. So for that person, like for when Nagarjuna, uh, in the essay on enlightenment, he talked about if somebody realizes emptiness, but they've already had some preparation on the bodhisattva path, then by the realization of emptiness, compassion can spontaneously arise. But having compassion does not spontaneously give you the realization of emptiness. And without that realization of emptiness, compassion has to be um, consciously developed. Okay? Yeah. So I I still, this just might be my own heart hurt, but if I think about the seven point method for right. compassion and I think about equalizing between yourself and others. Mm-hmm. The seven point method does not deal really with the emptiness and looking at right. things. So, so I can't fathom how you can think about the kindness of others enough 
to be the fuel to, to, to really take the bodhicitta in the same way that people let me change yourself and understand. Okay. So the, the meditation on the seven points of cause and effect is the meditation for modest faculty. The meditation on equalizing and exchanging self for other is the is the meditation for high faculty. But the person who's meditating on the seven point instruction of cause and effect, they'll also be meditating on the suffering of cyclic existence. It's not just the kindness of sentient beings. You have to understand the suffering of cyclic existence. Okay? Because without understanding the cyclic the under understanding the suffering of cyclic existence, then you think that all sentient beings suffer from is the out kind of suffering. If if all you think if you, the greatest suffering you think of is that, you know, people have the out suffering, yeah, you might have great compassion for that and that's going to lead you to do a lot of wonderful, extraordinary social welfare projects to stop the hunger and illness and, you know, lack of education and inequality and injustice. And that will lead you to do that, but that's not going to lead you to generate bodhicitta or to realize emptiness. And that's why that's determination to be free comes first. Yeah, <laughs> you know? And that's why the determination of, to be free you have to meditate on the three kinds of dukkha. And that's why I stress this so much, because people hear the word suffering, and they think, ouch, kind of suffering. And they don't think of people living in Beverly Hills as suffering. And they don't think of people in the God realms as suffering. And that's why the word suffering is a lousy translation, <laughs> because it leads people to think of ouch. And that's not what we're talking about. That's why I think the Sanskrit term dukkha explains it much better. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you. That okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, you spoke briefly when you um, brought up the topic mm-hmm. and, and the fact that when someone has realized emptiness, then that is the true sign. Mm-hmm. And so in my mind, the first thing that kind of came up was, oh, you know, so realized teachers are guru. And, and I was hoping uh, you could just briefly touch base on uh, the, the guru as a source of refuge and, and, and how the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha coalesce within them. Okay, so to talk about the guru as the source of refuge. If... Um, if a, if a particular teacher has realized emptiness, then they have become the Sangha refuge. Okay? Not all teachers have realized emptiness. Okay? Now, the whole practice of seeing the guru as a source of refuge is very much a tantric practice. Okay? Because in tantra, you're dissolving everything into... You're realizing the emptiness of everything and then having the wisdom realizing emptiness manifest in the form of yourself as the deity, sentient beings as the deity, the environment as a pure environment. So, of course, you're going to see your teacher as an enlightened being in that respect as well. Okay? Okay, so that's how it works in Tantra. Now, in the sense that the guru is the source of refuge because the guru is the one that connects you to the Buddha's teachings. 
Okay? In other words, um, you know, there may be many texts around, but would we understand the text properly? Would we be inspired by the text? Yeah? Then you think, well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, if I'd really have the interest to read these texts, if I read the text, if I'd understand them, I kind of, you know, I might understand them, but who lives them? You know, who's who's actually living that? Where can I find a living example? And so it's in that way that you can think of your teacher as an enlightened one in the, in the sense that they're the ones that connect you to the Buddha Dharma Sangha. Okay? Yeah? Something about text. Are there any recommendations for text to better understand I think any of the long rim texts, you know, have have chapters about the disadvantages of cyclic existence. Um, if you wanted a really long text or complete text about it, Geshe's Opus steps on the on the path. Um, you know, if you read about, uh, I think it's volume one that contains, anybody know or is it volume two? Well, volume one goes up to refuge. Okay, volume, okay, so then it's probably in volume two. Yeah, possibly volume three. But, uh, you know, that'll give you a very, very lengthy description, I'm sure, of, like, what dukkha means. And then address like the different realms and stuff. But I think if somebody who's coming into Buddhism fairly recently, uh-huh. the whole idea of realms, you know, if you're somebody who wasn't raised in um, a church right. environment, like thought of heaven and how I tend to reject those. Right. So understanding more what's yeah. meant by God realms and hell, hell realms. Hell realms. Yeah. Well, things. you know, for that, I don't know. Did I? I must have explained it in one of my books. Because the, the Tibetan way of explaining it often doesn't resonate with Westerners. Yeah. I remember he went the first time he was invited to the West, he went to Italy. And he talked about the hell realms and the lower realms in general for, I think, about three days, thinking that this will really set people on fire to practice the Dharma. You know? But... People coming from, you know, the culture of Dante, that wasn't what, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sparked their interest in the Buddha Dharma. So I think we need a different way of uh, seeing these different realms, okay? And while some people say, oh, they're psychological states, you know, I think seeing them as psychological states that human beings experience is a good lead-in to understanding the different realms of existence. But I think that uh, the a deeper understanding goes beyond seeing them as psychological states because the thing is when you're born in a particular realm of existence, it seems as real to you as what we're living in right now seems to us because we are living in one of the six realms of existence. 
Yeah. And that's why I say it. We, we study the realms as if we're some kind of outside of them. You know? I'm outside, and there are the six realms. And can I be reborn in those six realms? As a hungry ghost or an animal or even, you know, this deluxe sense pleasure God, you know? But kind of what I'm living now, that's real, and that's not a realm. Yeah. You, you, don't you think we kind of look at it that way? Yeah? But what we're living in right now is the human realm of samsara. This is it. There's different kinds of human beings throughout the universe, but this is definitely one of them, and this is a realm. And when we're born here, everything seems very real, doesn't it? Yeah? And we think we're real, and we think everything around us is real, and we think it exists the way it appears to us, and we don't at all think that our experience is a psychological state, do we? <laughs> you know, we grasp at inherent existence. Yeah? And we're gra- everything appears inherently existent. We grasp it at that way, and we are convinced it's reality. So the thing is that when, you know, if you're born as one of these sense-pleasure deluxe gods, that's the way you view it. There's real sense-pleasure deluxe. It's not a psychological state. If you're born in one of those blissful god realms where you're in deep meditative equipoise, you know, you experience that bliss and that is reality for you. And if you're born in the hell realm, how that hell realm looks to you personally is how... You know, you experience it. It seems very real. So I don't know if we have to take the descriptions of the hell realms exactly as they are and the locations of the hell realms. Okay. I remember when I was learning at the hell, the hell realms, you know, what really motivated me, what the biggest hell realm was that I could think of, is somebody criticizing me continuously. And shouting and screaming at me and criticizing me continuously. You know? I thought, oh, I would totally lose it. <laughs> you know? But that would be kind of that to me when I was thinking of pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I've experienced much more mental pain than physical pain so far this life. I'm sure the physical pain is coming. <laughs> yeah? Body, it's got to come. Okay? But. This is, uh, you know, this is how it seems to us when we're born there. Hmm? So one way, I think, to, to make that link between a psychological state and so on is if you think of, you know, let's say a state of anger that is so intense where you're paranoid, you're suspicious, you're angry, you're on guard, there's, you can't relax at all. And if you were thinking of that mental state manifesting as your body and the environment, well, that's kind of what the hell realm would be like. You know? Because it's the afflictions that cause the karma that leads to that rebirth. So in that sense, it is a manifestation of a mental state, isn't it? Yeah. The thing is, when you're born there, it looks real, pretty real. Okay. Does that mm-hmm. take question? Okay. Mm-hmm. I just, um, what you just said at the 
about your personal thing about a hell realm. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe understand it so much more than I ever have. My mom just visited me. Okay. And it, she said to me, she was getting in the shower, and she said, oh, it's a handheld. And I heard that as a criticism. And it was like the most mundane possible, you know? Like, and, and so when I think then, because of just having had that experience, it's like, okay, so a health state doesn't even have to be, have anything to do with some external thing. It's, it's an appearance to the it's mind. An appearance to the mind. Just like what we're experiencing now is an appearance right. to the mind. Right. But when we're experiencing it, do we say what I'm experiencing is appearance to my mind? Oh no, I just reacted defensively. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. So, thank you. Okay, so quietly.